those structures defrog the digital cushion. You have to have enough mass there where the hoof wall can grow down toward the ground alongside it. And when everything prolapses down to the ground, you lose the heels. You don't have the ability to grow heels back in these horses. This is the big problem. And I know you hear this and I know you hear that. Well, people that can take a horse with a marked negative Palmer angle and they can grow heels, please send them my way because it's one of the biggest problems we face. In on the rail at a jog, please. On the rail at a jog. Hello, everyone. We're back with another episode of On the Rail Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a super unique discussion, I think. Something that we always have questions on. I know there was just a few questions in Jenna's group just this week. But that old saying, if you have no foot, you have no horse. And I'm super excited to have Dr. Stephen O'Grady on today. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself and we'll go from there. Great. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Jenna. It's great to be on with you. My name's Dr. Steve O'Grady. I go by Steve. I have a referral practice in Keswick, Virginia called Virginia Therapeutic Farrowry, where we do consulting. We still see some selected cases in person, and we travel a lot in lecture, and we still uh, try and get a paper to publish every year. Stays very, very busy, thankfully, I guess. I tried to retire about five years ago, and it didn't work. <laughs> It didn't work very well. A little background is I learned my trade. I'll date myself pretty near 50 years ago. And I learned to trade the farrier trade by a formal three-year apprenticeship, which you don't see often anymore. Usually now you go to school for anywhere from 12 weeks to 16 weeks, sometimes a year in a couple of schools. And then maybe or maybe not, you work with somebody for a while. So I kind of look at the farrier trade as any other trade, whether, you know, it's a plumber or a carpenter, it takes quite a while to learn the trade. So you're very proficient. Having said that, I left my apprenticeship after three years. I went to work for a farrier who did saddle horses. And then I went to work for a year. Not that I was interested in the long-footed horses, but I was very interested in him as a craftsman, as a mechanic, that what I could learn from him as far as the trade goes. And then I went over to New Bolton Center. I worked over there for a year with a legend by the name of Jack Anderson, which sort of put the icing on the cake. So it was basically five years before I did horses on the weekends and at night and, you know, like all this would, but before I started my own practice. I worked as a farrier probably for pretty near five years, and I decided I wanted to go to pursue it a little bit more. So I decided, well, you know, I was a Believe it or not, I was a high school dropout. I never finished high school. So I figured, well, I need something to do. I'll go back to school. So I finished high school. I went on and did college at night. And then I said, well, maybe I could go on and, you know, always wanted to be a veterinarian. So I pursued the veterinary career and I became a veterinarian. 
So I've been a veterinarian for probably, again, I'm dating myself about 40 years now. I finished my veterinary career. I went to work for a veterinarian by the name of Dr. Dan Flynn in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was the biggest equine practice around at the time. And it sort of gave me a foothold into veterinary practice because, you know, it was a big practice. He saw good horses. I've always been spoiled because the practice has always been based on upper level horses or good horses. And I did general practice for years, but an emphasis on farrowry. And we slowly worked our way into where I could combine the two, the veterinarian part, the farrowry part. I was actually one of the first ones myself and a man by the name of Dr. Rick Redden. And it slowly evolved to where we had a practice where it was predominantly uh, farrowry. We still did general practice as well because people get faith in you or trust in you and, you know, they want to stick with you. So that's fine. But it evolved to the point where in 2003, we basically limited to problems of the horse's feet. In other words, medicine and surgery of the horse's foot. So that's basically my story and a very brief version. <laughs> what, 50 years summarized in three minutes or something like that? There you go. Yeah, yeah. So you have an entire practice currently just based off of doing foot things. Yeah. Well, as I said, I you come to a point where, you know, I don't do routine practice anymore. I don't see routine cases. Most of my cases are by referral or by ex-clients or Dr. Google picks on me quite a bit, which is kind of nice because <laughs> I see some very interesting cases. I'm able to help a lot of horses, which, I, which is still very important to me. If you lose that part of either the veterinary side or the farrier side, then I think it's time to stop. I really enjoy the teaching part, and I've had the privilege of lecturing in almost 30 countries around the world. You know, it's absolutely been wonderful. We published in the scientific literature, I have over 30 peer-reviewed papers, and then as you know, multiple papers in farrier journals and those kind of things. So I think we've done a little bit of, we've made a sort of inroads into educating not only vets, farriers, but also the horse owner population as well. I gave Dr. O'Grady a brief outline of our conversation today. And I think every one of these topics that I kind of put on here could be a podcast in itself. So we're going to do our best to run through some of this stuff because I have so many questions and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. We have a lot of horse hoof issues, shoeing issues and deformities in some of our show horses these days. So it's going to be great, but we'll kick this off. So tell us kind of in your opinion, what ideal or healthy foot is or looks like. Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> easy, to, easy question. To start off with, well, <laughs> most people are pretty familiar with their horse. Let's take the individual horse owner, for example. Most people are, they're pretty focused on the horse. So they look at the horse and they look down at their feet and the feet should be in context with the horse. In other words, not too small, not too large, but in other words, fit into the overall conformation of the horse's foot. People might laugh at this, but, you know, something to look at, the foot should be shiny, okay? Because if it's shiny, it's healthy. If you look at the foot from the side, and anybody can do this, you can run a line down from the dorsal or the pastern onto the, the surface of the foot, and that should be a straight line. And if that's a straight line, basically what you have there is you have a foot that has a good shape to it. 
because if that line wasn't straight, it would be broken back. Or if that line was moved forward, it would be broken forward like you would with a club foot. It's sort of a good something to observe. You want to make sure that the feet are basically, they don't have to be the same size, but they basically in proportion. There's an awful lot of horses with what we call mismatched feet. And that can be one low heel and one high heel. And the best way you can see this is to walk around behind the horse, lift up his tail and look forward. And you can look at the heels from the hairline to the ground. And this can be very subtle, or it can be the point where you have an extremely low heel. Do you have a high heel on the other side or almost a club foot? I'm going to tell you another part that's really important to me. And that's if anybody can do it. If you pick up the horse's foot and look at the bottom of the horse's foot, take a hoof pick, a wire brush, whatever you like, clean it out. You need to have a nice, wide, healthy frog. Okay, if you don't have a healthy frog, you do not have a healthy foot. If you have a narrow frog or a frog that is receded down below the hoof wall, in other words, in between the hoof wall, or one that is prolapsed, protruding beyond the level of the hoof wall, this is not a healthy situation. You know, I can't tell you how much importance I put on that. The other part I, I do, just like looking at a line down the front of the, the pastern and the dorsal or the, the surface of the hoof wall, look at the bottom of the foot. Anybody can do this, and it doesn't make any difference what stage of the farrow you're in. Draw a line. You can do it visually. Take a magic marker, get creative, and draw a line across the widest part of the horse's foot. Anybody can figure out the widest part of the horse's foot. And then look at that to the toe and look at the distance to the heel. They should be in approximate proportions. Okay. That's sort of a just a very quick one-on-one version of looking at a healthy foot or a good foot or well-shaped foot. Perfect. So since you kind of brought up the mismatch front feet thing. So when you talked there about what a good foot looks like, how often do you actually get to see matching good looking feet and horses anymore? I mean, I would assume the perp foot is probably a rarity in a lot of ways. Not necessarily. Again, you know, I am a farrier. So the last thing I'm going to do is pick on farriers, but there's a lot of different thought processes in farriery. And some of the foot shapes or confirmation that we see are farriery created because of somebody's thought process or something they theorize or something like that. Some of these are very subtle, these mismatched feet, and a lot of them can be changed or improved, let's use that word, just by using your rasp. You know, a little less on one, maybe a little bit more on the other. Again, I'm a big person on using guidelines. In other words, the hoof pastern axis, the middle of the foot, and trimming the foot appropriately. A lot of times you can go ahead and you can sort these feet out just by using a rasp. Take a little bit, you know, put the foot down, get behind the horse, look at it, whatever. And this is real helpful. Now, one of the problems we have there is when you have mismatched feet is there's an old concept in Fowry. Let's match these feet up. Oh, no, no, no. This is not what you want to do. You want to treat each foot accordingly because you're not going to be able to match one. 
Now, if you have, let's say you have a significant upright or a club foot on one side and you have a low heel on the other side, why is the foot low on one side, high on the other side? Okay, now think about it. When you have a club foot or you have an extremely high heel on one side, the stride length is going to be shorter on that side. We see this on an awful lot of dressage horses, and it's easy to correct. So you have a shortened stride on that, okay? So when the horse is striding, say he's trotting, he's going shorter on the upright foot, and he's going to be going longer on the low heel. Therefore, the low heel is going to be on the ground longer. Therefore, it's going to take more weight bearing or more loading over time. The other part that comes into play here a lot is that if we have a low heel, well, well, let's match it up a little bit. So we'll put a little wedge on a low heel. Well, if you have a low heel and you don't have good structures, you raise the heel up with a little wedge or a wedge pad or a wedge shoe. And what happens is, oh, it looks nice, but you're putting more pressure than those structures can handle. So you're actually damaging the foot with a low heel even further over time. I have so many thoughts on this. There's several common hoof problems that we see in our APHA type horses that I want to touch on a little bit. But just to continue the, the subject of your club foot or mismatch front feet, in your opinion, if you can summarize briefly for us how you go about not correcting them, I guess, whatever we're improving them, like you said, improving those if you do have like a club footed horse. Okay, sure. You have to realize that I'm a veterinarian. Okay, so (laughs) I'm going to want to see x-rays. I'm going to want to see radiographs. And that gives me so much information. And again, to my farrier friends, they always have that luxury of looking at this radiographically. Now, if I looked at this radiographically and I have a marked club foot, and let's go ahead and define a club foot. Okay, so if you have a foot that's upright, And you look at the, say, the coronary band, and you look at a radiograph, and if you can draw a line straight from the fetlock back down to the ground, in other words, it goes through all three bones of the digit, being the proximal, the middle, and the distal phalanx, then you have an upright foot with a higher heel. Now, if you have your line is broken forward there, in other words, the joint is in flexion, this is a club foot. And the joint is in flexion because you have a shortening of the deep digital flexor tendon, which you always have to observe when you're going to go ahead and correct these. Now, let's take if I have a horse that I'm going to be considered a club foot. I'm going to look at his age. And if it's a severe club foot and it's from zero to two and a half, three years old, I might recommended a check ligament desmotomy. In other words, cutting the check ligament, I can restore that foot back to its original conformation. In other words, to almost 70% of the other foot, which we'll say we'll consider normal. That's one option I have. The second option I have, if it's, and again, I don't really get involved in grading club feet, grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, whatever, you know, they're either, they have a very mild flexural deformity, and that means a a flexion of the joint when they stand, or severe. 
And that's the way I look at it. Now, if it's severe, what I want to do is let's go back to the confirmation a little bit as well. If you have a severe club foot, you're generally going to have the dorsal wall is going to have a little bit of concavity in it or a little dish in it. And the reason for that being is that you're going to have all the load or the weight bearing on the toe. Remember that you have a shortening of the deep digital flexor tendon. So what's going to happen is there that the heels are going to grow distally toward the ground and become longer to compensate for the the tendon being shortened. So think about those two, the leverage in the toe and the shortening of the tendon. This is what gives you that confirmation. So what do we want to do? We want to move the load, the weight bearing from the toe back to the heel. So the most logical way to do this, and one other thing there, when you see these club-footed horses, and again, there's all varying degrees of upright to, to club foot, a club foot will generally have a thin, flat sole, again, because it's taking more load. So we want to preserve that part of the foot. So we'll go back to our first guideline. And what will we do? We'll draw, draw a line across the middle of the horse's foot, and then we'll trim from the middle of the foot back toward the heels, okay, as much as we can. And in the majority of cases, the frog is going to be receded down below the hoof wall. In other words, it's going to be sitting in between. It's not going to be in contact with the ground. It's going to be well below. And if we can trim to the point where we're just about making contact with the frog, I'm very, very happy. Now, we haven't touched the bottom of the foot. And this is, you can use this generalized approach to all horses with upright feet or with an abnormal or upright shaped foot. And so what we'll do now is we haven't touched the bottom of the foot from in front of that line. We'll put the foot up in front of us on a, on a hoof stand or whatever, and we'll remove that dish or that concavity in the wall. So the coronary band is straight from the hoof wall is straight from the coronary band down to the ground. Okay. Now here comes the kicker. And this is what we have a little bit of trouble sometimes with the farrier is that once you raise the heels, lower the heels, sorry, remember that you have a shortening of the deep flexor tendon. So what we do is we take that foot just out behind the other one. In other words, just move it back and stand it so the foot is just a little bit behind the other foot. And you'll see that that heel does not touch the ground. You could put a credit card underneath there or something. So we have realigned the bone within the hoof capsule, but now we have to deal with a tendon. So it's very easy just to fit a shoe on there and just put a little bit of a heel elevation on your shoe to compensate for the shortening of the tendon. And you have to prove it to yourself sometimes. Just take the horse before, videotape it for, you know, going trotting down a short distance and then do the farry and come back and trot it again, you will see that the stride is, is completely different and you have a much longer stride. So again, you made some topics that we, <laughs> that we could spend an entire podcast talking about that we, we see, you know, we see on a routine basis. So Right. So if I can just briefly summarize, I think what I heard you say here is I'm going to do a very quick synopsis of it. But if you had an upright heel, you generally take the back half ish of that foot and trim that down or rasp it down 
to lower the heel and then the difference between the heel and the ground as you move that foot back, then that you actually put a small raised shoe on, which sounds counterintuitive to put a raised shoe on a horse that's already allegedly upright in its heels. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but I want you to understand it because it's quite important. If you look at this, what you're trying to do is put the load back toward the back of the foot or on the whole bottom of the horse's foot. So if you have an upright or a club foot, you'll have the bone in such a position where most of the load is on the toe part. That's why the you have that concavity and the, and the flattened sole there. So what you want to do is you want to go ahead and change the position of the bone so it's accepting weight on the whole solar surface of the bone. Okay, now it looks fantastic. But Remember that you have a shortening of the tendon. So you have to, so now you're not raising the heels up, you're raising the whole foot up like you would with a horse that say you had heel pain or something like that, where you wanted to raise the, the heels up. Remember that a wedge pad goes from nothing to two degrees or three degrees or whatever. So it's not just a raising the heels, you're raising the whole bottom of the foot up. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. Are you does. sure? Yes. I want you to go preach this to the farriers. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go on the opposite way, though. On the so, if we have a horse with low heels, which we see a lot in our show horses, or negative Mm -hmm. palmar angles, what's going on there, and what's happening with the horse and its soundness, and then you know maybe how you go about correcting that kind of issue. Cool, boy, that's a again loaded question. I know. Where do I start here? If you have a horse, we'll deal with the negative palm rank in a second. If you have a horse with low heels, you generally don't have good structures in the back part of the horse's foot. Okay. So your thought process would be, well, let's raise the heels up and make this foot look a little bit better. But remember, when you put two or three degrees on structures that don't have good consistency or they don't have good integrity, the pressure from raising them up is going to damage those structures further. So what I've been fond of over the years is, do you know what a spider plate is? Why don't you tell us about it for anybody that doesn't know? A spider plate, it's a firm plate. They're made out of either plastic or carbon fiber. And think about a pad and you would have the toe and the heel uh, toe and heel quarters cut out and you would have just a the back part would would cover the frog and then you would have like arms that would go over to the pad on both quarters and then a pad that would go to the toe i can send you a picture i'd be happy to and you can put one up or you'd be able to describe it better they work we'll put it in the show notes so yeah yeah remember on the on the eighth day god created spider plates (laughs) The idea here is, and you'll see when you see them, how they make sense. The back part of the spider plate, or they're called stabilizer plates, is going to cover the frog. So that's number one, it's going to give you protection. Then the arms going to the toe and to the quarters, they're going to redistribute the weight away from the heels toward the rest of the, the horse's foot, which, you know, the toe is, is obviously going to have a, have a better consistency. So the club foot, you're taking the load from the toe 
and you're putting him back at the heels. Here, you're trying to take the load off the heels. So with the chance they, they may get a little stronger or produce a little bit more horn or, or whatever, and then redirect it toward the toe. So that's what we generally do there. Now, when we put a spider plate on, we can also fill the foot with this dental impression material and we form another interface. In other words, we would trim the foot appropriately and then we would put a layer, a thin layer of impression material on the whole bottom of the horse's foot and then put our shoe and our spider plate. We would press it down into the impression material, put two nails in, let it cure. And what it does is you're putting a deformable layer of material between the foot and the shoe, which is also going to help to distribute the weight across the whole bottom of the horse's foot. So I've seen these with this pour-in material, I guess is what it's called, and just the shoe by itself with nothing. And do you have use cases for both of those directions or do you always try to put some type of pad with it? I usually put some kind of pad. I'll tell you why. The so-called pour-in pads, they certainly have their place. But I think they're also overused. Farriers sometimes will see a well-known farrier use this. And well, he uses it. I'll use it without farriery like veterinary medicine or, you know, running a podcast or whatever. It's a thought process. You have to think your way through why you're doing it. When you put a pour in pad in the bottom of the horse's foot, in other words, between the shoe, what you're doing there is just like a spider plate is you're redistributing the load. With just the shoe on, all the load is around the perimeter of the foot, what we call peripheral loading. Now, if you fill the bottom of the foot with a pouring, now you're redistributing the load and you're loading the whole bottom of the foot. Okay, this should be very clear. Okay, now, then you have to be careful if you're putting this pouring pad in because you're trying to protect the soul and grow more soul and you have thin soles to start with, when you put a pouring pad in there, this is where you have to be careful. If you have thin soles, it's going to make those soles worse because again, you're going to put pressure on structures that are not, don't have the integrity to take that extra force. Millennial Cowgirl is a marketing and media company where we offer on-site content creation for the equine industry. Everything from amateurs, professional trainers, facilities, and product supply companies. Come to us for any of your media, marketing, and content creation needs. Find us on our website at millennialcowgirl.com or on Facebook and Instagram. With the spider plates, is this something that these horses then are maintained in for long term, or is this a short term thing, or how do you use them? It just depends on how the foot responds. I don't know whether you've ever seen my, I, I think I emailed you once or twice, didn't I? On the bottom of my email, there's a couple quotes there. And one of them, my favorite one, it's the trim. And this is what everything revolves around with Fowry. It's the trim. And then when we're not able to trim the foot sufficiently, or we don't have the structures to do a good trim or trim it the way we would like, then the thought process come in, how can we accommodate for the horse's foot, you know, with other fiery, uh, with our shoes, pads, you know, anything we do. You asked a minute ago, do I also do only use a stabilizer pad? No. Sometimes I will go ahead and I'll put some impression material in the middle of the foot, just maybe leave the sole out. If the sole's thin, put some impression material on the sulci of the frog, and then put a stiff leather pad on. And there's some wonderful pads 
no financial interest to come from Italy called the Plano Pads. These are really stiff. A pad, again, is not only going to give you protection, but accompanied by the appropriate trim, the pad is going to redistribute the load across the bottom of the horse's foot and hopefully improve it over time. Perfect. That's such great information for us. And so we'll continue to move on here a little bit. Like I said, I know all this could be a a single episode in itself, but on the subject of heels, let's move to heel pain and maybe touch on navicular. Let's touch the negative Palmer angle if we could. And what I really, I think for your viewers to get the most out of it and for you guys as well, and I think your questions are wonderful, especially your follow-up questions, is to you know, I want you to understand that if you don't understand that, you know, I shouldn't be telling you. And if I can't explain it to you adequately, I could, I shouldn't be describing it. So if you don't understand it, please holler. Okay. Absolutely. So let's look at the negative Palmer angle. And this is the buzzword. Now it's become a diagnosis. It's become a disease. It's become a fiery problem, a medical problem or whatever. Okay, And if we define the negative Palmer angle, what it would be, it's a radiographic symptom. Okay, And remember that symptoms lead to disease. Now, is the negative Palmer angle a problem? Absolutely. And the biggest problem it is that it puts the joint in an abnormal position. In other words, as the heels go down, the load, remember, biomechanically, the load goes toward the back of the foot. So you're putting the load back toward the back of the foot. So you have the tendency to damage those structures further. Just think about, say, the hind feet. Think about the implications on the low heels. There's great correlation now. There's two papers out showing that there's a correlation between low heels and the hind foot and problems in the hock, the stifle, the, the proximal suspensory. So it affects the whole axial skeleton. Now, how do we get to the negative Palmer angle? And there's a lot of factors to it. And it's not just, Fowry plays a little bit of a role in it, but if we start from the beginning, horses, thoroughbred horses, have the genetic propensity to have low heels, to have poor structures. Look at some of these poor racehorses, four-month-old foals, they have no structures in the back there. How the horse's foot is managed when he's a youngster, say from a yearling up to two, three years old. Do you put shoes on him too fast? The type of fiery. Does he have enough turnout? Are you allowing those heels to develop? In other words, to start. Then how much work does the horse do? And what kind of surfaces does he do? Because the more load, remember that you should have some give to the ground. Remember, every force is opposed by an equal and opposite force. You should have some give with the ground. If you're working on completely hard terrain or surfaces that don't deform, that's going to take its toll over time. Believe it or not, okay, horses that are overweight, and this is a big problem. Look at some of the quarter horses. Look at some of the metabolic dressage horses, the warm bloods. When you put the horse's foot was only designed like people to accept so much weight from the horse's body. So if you have a horse that's 200 pounds overweight, well, you're putting 200 pounds, extra pounds on that foot over time. Now, remember the heel, the palmer or the plantar, in other words, the heel section of the horse's foot, that's deformable. Those are soft tissue structures. 
those readily change shape, those can readily be damaged versus the front part of the foot, which is bone, lamellae, hook wall, etc. And then unfortunately, we have to bring farriery into it because farriery sometimes gets away from the basics. And the basics mean the trim, the proper size shoe, the proper fitting of the shoe, where it is, and, and so on and so forth. If we don't trim the heels appropriately, we are decreasing the surface area. I hate to say trim heels or lower the heels or raise the heels or whatever, trimming the heels. If we don't trim the heels appropriately and allow the heels to migrate forward, remember, heels don't grow tall. They grow forward. You're dealing with a cone, so it can't go straight. So the more you allow those heels to grow forward and stay forward, you're decreasing the ground surface there. What happens when that happens is that the soft tissue structures, the frog, the frog state, the digital cushion, they start to go the other way. And they start to prolapse and move back toward out of the hoof capsule. Now we take the heels that move forward and we combine that with a short shoe. We're decreasing the ground surface even further. This starts damaging those structures in the back of the foot. And once you lose the integrity, the frog comes down below the hoof wall. You got a big problem because in order to grow hoof wall again or to restore hoof wall, you have to have a structural framework or lattice work, like a grape barter. Okay, so those structures, the frog, the digital cushion, you have to have enough mass there where the hoof wall can grow down toward the ground alongside it. And when everything prolapses down to the ground, you lose the heels, you don't have the ability to grow heels back in these horses. This is the big problem. And I know you hear this and I know you hear that. Well, people that can take a horse with a marked negative Palmer angle and they can grow heels, please send them my way because it's one of the biggest problems we face. It seems like I see more and more of that type of thing, or maybe it's just I'm more aware of it as I'm getting older myself. But uh, yeah, it seems very prevalent with horses. Yeah, there's no doubt it is a big problem. And it's interesting you say that because 20 years ago, I don't remember seeing the amount that I'm seeing now. So what Mm -hmm. has happened between then and now? But I don't want you to think that it's a disease or it's a diagnosis. Oh, this horse got negative Pomerang. That's what's wrong with it. No, that's not what's wrong. You need to find out what's wrong. That's what you found on radiographs. And again, as I said, it has so many connotations. It can cause so many problems and it needs to be addressed some way or another. But we're very limited when it comes to farrowry. So in my own experience, if a horse is under has negative palmar angles, maybe underrun heels, that low heels, that type of thing, you even do radiographs with some of our veterinarians, then their answer to all of it is like, well, throw a, a small wedge on them. I assume that's probably not your take on all of it then? I can't say that. You know, I'm certainly not going to criticize anything anybody does. And I look at this as a thought process. If you have underrun heels, what does underrun heels mean? Okay. You can have low heels, you can have collapsed heels, you got underrun heels. Nobody's defined all these different types of heels. Now, if you have underrun heels, okay, that means that the heels have become thin and they've underrun. In other words, they've sort of rolled underneath the horse toward the frog. 
When that happens, okay, they have no more ability to bear weight because they have a curve in there. You know, you have to have horn hoof wall with tubules in order to accept weight. Once they become thin and bend underneath there, they can't accept weight. So now we look at those and your frog is usually lower than the heels are. So in other words, protruding down. So you can't really trim them. So you put a wedge on there. Yeah. Well, you might put the compressed frog a little bit and maybe load the whole whole heel. But again, you have to be so careful that you don't damage those structures further when you put wedges on. The way we deal with these horses, believe it or not, if I can, and we, we see this in a lot of the upper end horses is if the client will bear with me, and most of them are pretty good, is I'll take the shoes off for a period of time. And I try and get a month out of them. You think that's easy? That's a tough deal to get <laughs> get out of somebody, you know, for a month. And what we do right away is we we just reduce the length of the toe and we start walking the horse on a firm surface. Well, what happens? Think about it: is that you go ahead and your frog is going to compress and the heels are going to drop down a little bit toward the ground, and all of a sudden the hoof wall and the frog are on the same plane. Now, if that horse has the ability to grow heel, he'll start growing some heel. The seg- and again, this is all related or it's all correlated to the amount of damage at the heels. And some of these I could send you some pictures and you, it would bring a tear to your eye. It does to mine anyway. The second thing I look at is if, again, if people will give me a little bit of time, I'll put these horses in wooden shoes. And the wooden shoe, second to barefoot, if the horse can produce some hoof wall or improve the structures in the palmer or plant. I use the word palmer meaning front foot, the back part of the foot, plantar meaning back foot, the back part of the foot. The wooden shoe, if the foot has the ability to improve, you can't believe what three or four weeks a wooden shoe, a properly applied wooden shoe will do. Absolutely amazing. These are just regular shoes, flat shoes? No, wooden shoes. They're wooden shoes. But I mean, sorry for my ignorance here, but is the shape of the shoe just like a regular flat horseshoe, even though it's wooden, or does it look different? Oh, no, it looks completely different. It looks Okay. And again, that's a whole topic in itself. Sure. We use them for horses with, they're sort of my choice for laminated horses. We use them for P3 fractures, and I've used them countless numbers for just improving the overall foot mass. If I could throw a little tiny bit of a commercial in here, if you don't mind. Sure. I have a website. It's equipodiatry.com. And believe me, I do not want any more work. So it's an informational website. And there are probably about 80 peer-reviewed papers on the website now. And it's a place where vets, farriers, horse owners can go and they can get what we consider to be some good, credible information because, you know, Dr. Google will kill you if you give him enough time. <laughs> if you spend enough time with Dr. Google, you'll get what you're looking for. doesn't mean it is right or wrong. But on the website, these papers have been peer reviewed and they've been published and we consider them to, to have some good, credible information. And again, I generate no revenue or anything from the website. It's just for informational. You know, why should you have 
papers, not only my own papers, but other clinicians' papers who I respect there up there as well. And, you know, why shouldn't you just open it up to the public? And if it helps one horse, it makes me happy. So I just pulled this up on my screen while you were talking, and especially with this wooden shoe thing, and that's really interesting. So I'm going to read this whole article when we get done here today. We have probably, I have over 350 documented cases of laminitis that we've done. Documented means that I have records on. In other words, I did the horse with a consult or, you know, I had my own hands on it, not hearsay, well, the horse got better or whatever. That's pretty significant. And I think if I look at my career, the wooden shoes are one of the things that have really, really, I think, made a big difference. And we modified them, changed them until we made them where they're pretty consistent. But there is a learning curve for putting these on. And they are available commercially as well. So it's not something a farrier has to make like I did in the beginning. Okay. Very good. I was like, that's a whole article that I I really want to look into. Is there anything else, again, loaded question on this general subject, but in specifics with navicular syndrome that we should touch on any kind of key points you would like to touch on navicular horses? Yeah, that's a bit of a loaded question. I think we've evolved to the point where we have gotten away from this horse has navicular disease. And for years and years and years, and probably up to the last maybe 15 years, when you had your horse examined and the clinician blocked his heels, well, and the horse went sound. Well, he's got navicular disease. Okay. Well, we found out that when we blocked the heels, we blocked the whole entire foot. Okay. Not just the heels, we blocked everything except a little area in the front of the horse's foot, uh, you know, up by the coronary band, the lamellae. When we blocked the horse's feet, we're blocking the whole thing. Ooh. So then we decided, well, we'll block the joint. Well, we found that if we don't look at the anesthesia in the joint in a specified time, it diffuses down into the nerves to supply the whole foot. So we take the whole foot out. So in order to diagnose navicular disease, you basically have to block navicular bursa. In other words, that's the way you can get a specific diagnosis. And even that isn't complete, believe me. And who wants to take go through the ritual, the stress and everything to block a joint every time you want to go ahead and diagnose this? Okay. But that's probably the only true way you can do it. Okay. Number two, then once you have blocked the vicar bursa, remember, there's an awful lot of other structures there as well. There's the bone. There's the impar ligament. There's the deep digital flexor tendon. There's suspensory ligaments in the navicular bone. So you got a whole array of structures in there. So which one's bothering the horse? Then the next step is, well, if you have isolated, well, we'll radiograph it. And your radiograph might be the most pristine, beautiful navicular bone you'd ever want to see. So how could you have navicular disease without disease in the bone? It would be pretty hard to do in my mind. So this is just the complexities of navicular disease. Now, all of a sudden, I think it was my buddy Tracy Turner who coined the word navicular syndrome. Well, what does navicular syndrome mean? Well, we have metabolic syndrome. We have this syndrome. We have that syndrome. It means a group of structures that could be causing a problem, but you don't really know which one. True navicular disease, and I know you people have 
certainly had your share of it in quarter horses with the small feet and, you know, some of the lineage that you see and the genetics or whatever. The Vicar disease usually crops up with abnormal foot conformation or abnormal shape. Okay. And certain breeds are more predisposed to it. Now, when you start looking at this, you start seeing symptoms. And the symptoms are, you don't see this in the Vicar syndrome. The symptoms of true Navicar disease is, well, you bring your horse out and he's a little pottery. Okay. And you go ahead and you trot him and he doesn't stride out. Okay. He may point his feet a little bit. He may land on his toe because his heels hurt. You have so many different symptoms and it's usually bilateral, both sides. You have so many symptoms. Here's your first start to diagnosing the Vicar disease. To finish off, if you do diagnose a horse with Navicar disease, and it takes an army, really, and I don't see very many of many of those, what's your treatment going to be? Well, you can certainly use medication to get into there with putting medication in the bursa or whatever. And you can use some non-steroidal, butamine, those kind of things. But your biggest help here is going to be your farrowry, because when you have Navicar disease or even syndrome, what you're going to have is you're going to have an abnormal foot conformation. And number one, you want to improve the conformation as much as you can. Number one. Number two, if the pain is coming from the navicular area, what do we want to do is we want to take the weight, the load as much as we can off that area, right? So how are we going to do that? Remember the biomechanics again, we're going to raise the heels to decrease the tension in the deep digital flexure tendon. We're going to put the correct size shoe on. We're going to trim the heels so you have enough ground surface underneath that. Okay. There are no, and one of the other things, which is sometimes forgotten about it, to put appropriate breakover in the shoe. Because whenever that horse breaks over and he has long toes or the shoe is a little out in front of him, or you don't put some breakover in the shoe, you make the tendon work a little harder. If the tendon's working a little harder, it's putting a little bit more pressure on the navicular bone. So the fowry comes down to improving the foot conformation, putting the appropriate shoe on with a little heel elevation generally to relieve that area and putting breakover in your shoe. Okay. Now, there's a lot of different ways to achieve this, but this is what you can basically do for navicular disease. Is your fitness holding back your writing? Discover Right Fit Life. We tailor fitness coaching for writers. Balance writing with life, shed fat, and bid farewell to feeling overwhelmed. With personalized nutrition and fitness plans, boost your physical strength and mindset to add joyful years to your writing career. Be proud of who you see on the saddle. Plus, join our Fitness and Fat Loss for Equestrians Facebook group for free resources. Ready to elevate your writing? Visit RideFitLife.com now. Your fitter, happier writing life is just a click away. Great to take away from all of that. I know we are almost at an hour here, but I do want to touch on hoof cracks and abscesses, which is not quite as probably intense of a topic as some of these other structural deformities or problems. We'll start with abscesses because it's, it's more innocuous. What's your best way to handle a horse if you pull them out of the stall one day and it's three-legged lame and it's determined there's an abscess there? Okay. I had some other thoughts on heel pain. 
when you're talking about Nabicker syndrome, remember that can be a lot of different things that in a certain area that relate to pain in that area. In other words, a lot of different causes. And one of the ways, and again, the treatment is basically going to be the same, you know, to try and isolate the area that is discomfort. But one of the nice things about if you're looking at Nabicker syndrome or even Nabicker disease, I always, when I block these horses, I always block one side of the heels more than the other. And you could have a horse with sheared heels. You could have a horse with it's overloading one side of the horse's foot. You could have a core on one side. You just put a low, small block in one side of the horse's foot. You don't have to do both heels. And it can give you so much information. In other words, to get you to, to start in a direction for treatment. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you inject coffins joints very often in your practice? No. Why not? I think it's probably the most, uh, why do veterinarians do it? Because they can, okay? And it's almost accepted, well, you got some heel pain or the horse is a little short, well, we'll inject his joints. I'm more for looking at the horse's foot. If I block a joint for whatever reason and the horse improves and I think the horse has a synovitis or I think if the horse has uh, some kind of inflammation in that joint, sure, I'll put something in that joint. The majority of the horses that are going to block with a, when you block the coffin joint and going to block sound, they're usually going to have a foot conformation. In other words, a broken back or a broken forward hoof pastern axis, which is putting that joint in an abnormal position, therefore putting stress on the joint. That's over time, that's going to lead to inflammation and eventually osteoarthritis. So what I'm going to do is I may put something in the joint to put the fire out, make the horse comfortable. Then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take the farrowry. I'm going to take it to the next level and I'm going to change the shape of that horse's foot. You're more an advocate, of course, of treating the problem and not just the symptom by itself, which makes well, sense. Jenna, you know, from what I so far, you know, you're a pretty smart girl. And if you have pain in the joint, all these horses have pain in the joint. I don't think so. But if you do have pain in the joint, why do you have pain in the joint? Because it's in an abnormal position and the horse is loading one side of the joint more than the other. In other words, the front of the back part of it. Yeah. And it's going to become uncomfortable after a while. We did a we did a group of horses over time from one farm. And it was a horse that uh, it was a farm that had some pretty, that's a nice way of saying, the farrowry wasn't completely up to par. And a lot of horses with small shoes, broken back hoof pastern axes, whatever. And we had eight horses and we did four of them with farrowry and we did four of them with joint injections. And they all improved for the first month. Okay. And after a month's time, the horses with the small shoes, they became sore again. And the ones where we changed the hoof pastern axis or changed position, they just went on and forgot about it. So there is a big correlation to it. It's something that if I had some more numbers, I would publish it because I think it's important. Yeah. Interesting. Very, all of this is so interesting. Like Liz said in the beginning of our episode is no foot, no horse. And yet horses are so, and I say insanely difficult to properly manage their feet because they're giant 
animals on such tiny surface areas <laughs> with their feet. So Yeah. In veterinary medicine, we're taught anatomy, biomechanics. In vet school, you know, it's pretty consistent. Unfortunately, they don't spend enough time on Farrery in veterinary medicine. I think it's more important in the medicine when it comes to the, to the foot. But on the Farrery side, there is not Farriers that are adhering to basic principles. In other words, there are so many different thought processes, so many different ideas, theories, whatever. So there's not consistent basic farriery, which I think would really improve this situation so much. Again, it depends on the farrier's skill level, his interest, his knowledge, how long he's been doing it, and more than anything, his training. Well said. All right. So to pull back a little bit, let's go back to the abscesses for people that just have general everyday horse things going on in their barn instead of your tragic foot case. So you pull your horse out. It's really lame. It's determined it's an abscess. What's your advised tips and management practices to handle those things? I'll tell you what I don't like, which has become commonplace now, is that the horse comes out toe-touching lame. And if he's toe-touching lame, he either has an abscess He has a puncture wound or he has a fracture. Boom. That's going to be it. You hear so many times that, oh, he's up on his toe. Well, I'll soak his foot and it'll break out at the coronary band. Oh, I hate this. Okay. Because remember, if it breaks out at the coronary band, it's going to take time. It's going to take a few days. Why should you have the horse in agony? Number one. Number two, if it breaks out at the coronary band, that infection has traveled tunneled all the way up through the soft tissue, the dermis, and broke out the coronary band, you know, from the pressure. So now you have a tract that's going underneath there, which can end up being a crack or a problem later on. Going back to that, if you have a horse that comes out toe-touching lame or, or, or severely lame, number one, he's going to have a pulse. And he's going to have a pulse with any of those three entities that I talked about. He's going to have more of a pulse with an abscess. Number two, whether you're a horse owner or whether you're the farrier or you're the vet, the next thing that comes into play is your hoof testers, okay? And with a bruise or with a fracture or whatever, the hoof tester is going to be diffuse. In other words, you find it over a large area of the bottom of the horse's foot. With an abscess, you can find a focal area. In other words, you can play with it and to the point where you can almost localize it. Okay, here's where it got in. And then if you take a hoof knife or a loop knife or whatever you want and just explore that area at the white line, don't, please, please, please don't cut into the sole because that's not the way an abscess gets in. An abscess gets in at the sole wall junction or the white line. Just go ahead and just lightly pare down right where that area was, that focal area of pain was, and you'll generally find a little fissure or an opening or a crack or something where you take a couple little bit more swipes with the end or the hook of the the knife, and all of a sudden you're going to go ahead and you're going to get some drainage. That's the point of an abscess. Get some drainage. If you have kind of a thick sole and I can't find the point of entry or where I can drain it, I will put an animal lintex on it for 24 hours or so. Poultices do not draw anything. They soften the horse's foot, which makes it easier to find something or makes something easier to to erupt. 
then I'll generally be able to find them. Once I have some drainage, I'll use the animal lintex again. But when I use the animal lintex, I'll use the whole sheet. I won't use the pads that go on the bottom because I want to envelop the whole foot in the animal lintex. Then, you know, I put it in place with a figurated brown gauze and then then some duct tape or and bed wrap or whatever. And what's going to happen now is remember that the animal lintex, I don't know much about the other poultices other than they're sloppy and they're greasy and they're get all over my hands and underneath my fingernails and that kind of stuff. Remember now with a poultice, what's a poultice going to do? It's the heat of the poultice and the salts. It has salts in the body of the poultice. They're going to draw. In other words, they're going to promote drainage that you have there. And then in 24, 36 hours, the horse is sound. I'll put a dry bandage on there maybe for a day or so and then get back to business. So you're not an advocate of soaking feet? I haven't soaked the horse in 20 years. Okay. I, lo- <laughs> I love that because that's common, kind of common practice, I feel like, still for most people. It is. It is. And then, but when you think about it, you know, now your barn is the wintertime. Uh, Ohio's cold, you know. It's 30 degrees. You get your water maybe however hot you get it. It cools right off. The horse gets pissed off after five minutes and he kicks the bucket over. You know, you go get another bucket. And by the time you're finished, you maybe have eight minutes of soaking in there. And then you put one of those poultices on the bottom. I just find this is this is so efficient. When I take one of those animal lintex sheets, I'll get the water as hot as I can get my hand in it. I'll put it in the water. Okay, it'll bubble up until it's saturated. Then I'll close it on itself. But the, the member's got plastic on the outside. Now, just squeeze the water out of it. And I'll put it on there where it's hot. You take that off 24, 30 hours later, it's still going to be warm. So while you're inside at night, you know, by the fireplace having a glass of wine, that animal lintex is working on your horse. That's great information to have. Works harder, not harder. Right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I don't use any antibiotics. Some people do, but. Let it be known that antibiotics do not stop an abscess from maturing and allowing the drainage or rupture out the coronary band. That's a bit of a wives' tale. Because remember that you need blood supply to get the antibiotics to the abscess. Mm-hmm. And what's causing the pain of an abscess? The swelling, the pus, the exudate there. So you're not getting anything into that area because of that swelling, the swelling against the blood vessel. So it's not going to hurt anything. If you want to give antibiotics, you know, that's, that's your own business, but it's not going to, it's not going to retard the abscess from being, I went to a farm, I traveled to a farm in Tennessee a couple of years ago, and it was kind of interesting. They, it was a breeding farm and they were having an epidemic of abscesses. And yeah, I looked at these feet and I went through it with the farrier and the farrier was maybe cheating a little bit, you know, and he had a lot of horses to do. So, you know, his trims were maybe not as good as they should have been. And what we did was we just changed the trim where we shortened the toe, put a little bit of a bevel in there. So we didn't have any leverage at the toe that stretched the white line or the sole wall junction. The next month after I was there, they had one abscess. So the whole idea is if you keep the toe back, in other words, in a, let's use the word appropriate length, okay, where you don't have leverage, where you're not stretching, causing fissures in that white line, that's the biggest prevention you can have for an abscess. 
Great information. So if we continue on a little bit here, and I know we've taken up enough of your time, say you notice your horse has a new quarter crack starting. What's your best practices for how to manage that? Yeah, that's what we lectured on last night where it was it was a bloody disaster, hopeful defects. <laughs> the, the biggest ones are, are toe cracks and quarter cracks. And we see an awful lot of them in the upper level horses. And it, it's something that really takes the horse out of competition. Some things you've got to stop or whatever. If you look at the barefoot horse, is when's the last time you saw a quarter crack in the barefoot horse? I don't know that I ever have. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. Therefore, we see it quite quite often in working horses. Therefore, Farrery has to contribute to it some way or another. Fair enough? Now, yeah, makes sense. The second thing on there, you will not see. Do you know what a, a sheared heel is? Very upright walls are almost a. Yeah, it's a foot that has one side, usually the inside foot, inside heel that is displaced proximally or upwards, mm-hmm. quite markedly compared to the other side. In other words, if you pick up the foot and look at it, you're the length of your heel from the hair to the shoe surface would be markedly different. Okay. The sheared heel is a sign of strain or stress or overload. And you see sheared heels in probably 50% of the horses. And it's a way the sheared heel is a way the horse adapts. And when you see a sheared heel, you watch the horse walk. He's not going to walk flat. He's going to walk asymmetrically where he'll contact the outer wall and then load the inner wall. Okay. And that's dictated by his conformation. You will not, and the reason I'm saying that is you will not see a quarter crack without a sheared heel. There's a paper on 70 horses that myself and an Italian farrier did a few years ago. You can read the correlation between the two. You won't see a quarter crack without a sheared heel. And it's going to be on the side where the heel is is displaced. And what happens is that the side of the heel that's sheared or being displaced, okay, the load overcomes or is greater than the capacity of the hoof wall to accept the extra or excessive load. What happens? It breaks, okay? And these are cases that that actually become quite severe. Again, trimming comes into play, the inappropriate size shoe, the placement of the shoe, all these kind of things. Guess what's coming? Fix the cause. I see a theme here with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So many times, you know, I see them after they've been seen by different farriers and vets and whatever. And the farriers, he's there to make people happy in his mind. Well, let's fix this crack. Okay. I can fix them too. And, you know, there's so many ways of fixing them. It becomes boring. But why not take the cause away? So, again, if I have my way a lot of people or clients will put up with my what I want to do is I'll take the shoes off for a couple days and you cannot believe how that heel will just settle back into a more appropriate position number one just after a couple days just after a couple days you can hear what I say you can do it yourself or have your your guys do it or or whatever then I'll go ahead and I'll shoe the horse and we shoe them in a, in a different way. And that's probably too much for this particular podcast. But if I have my way, if if a horse has a quarter crack and it's open at the coronary band and is bleeding, I would consider this a fracture. 
So you want to go ahead and if I can, I'll take that horse out of work. That goes over real good in this day and age, as you know. Some people will go along with it, but a lot of times these horses also have to jump or they have to work. And they spent the last month going up to this championship or whatever. Well, they're not going to, you know, they're stopped. And if I don't fix it. Somebody else is going to. So we'll shoe the horse and then we'll wait. 24, 30 hours. And the reason for this is that if you have a quarter crack, the coronary band is going to be pushed up out of shape. And after you shoe the horse, we're going to have a space underneath that part of the shoe to unload that heel. In 24 hours, that coronary band is going to settle down into a more normal position or a more appropriate position. Then I'll go ahead and uh, I'll repair it. If you repair it with the coronary band out of shape, in other words, pushed up, almost have like a little peak at the coronary band, then you're going to repair the coronary band in an abnormal position and you're not going to have good hoof fall growth because your horn tubules at the coronary band are going to be compressed. That's interesting. So that's why then you can see the defects even after it's healed, sometimes down the foot yes. from these yes. things. Okay. Yes. And when I do repair them, I put an implant in. I'm not a big fan of just putting a piece of plastic over the outside, you know, the acrylic patch or some fiberglass or whatever. Remember, if you have a full thickness crack, it's bleeding. You can move it back and forth. That's a fracture. That needs to be stabilized. You go to the hospital broken bone, the surgeon's not going to put a bandage around your foot. He's going to put some hardware in there. And the same way, and the way we repair them with some wires is it's so fast, efficient, and, and it gives the wall a lot more stability. But again, the biggest thing here is prevention. And all quarter cracks can be prevented. And it's so often that we'll see a horse, we'll do the case, the crack grows out, the horse may be sold, or the farm may change farriers or whatever. And lo and behold, three months later, the horse cracks again. So in other words, what I'm saying is that after we finish it, we have some rules that you follow as far as trimming and shoeing the horse goes, and they'll never crack again. So if you go to a different person and they do it a different way, or they revert back to the way it was done originally, they'll crack. Because remember, there's a scar underneath that area we've repaired. Just like an abscess that travels underneath the wall and breaks out the coronary band, it leaves a scar. The same thing every time the hoof wall cracks, a quarter crack or a toe crack, it leaves a scar, which makes it more susceptible to crack again. Quarter cracks. Liz, do you have any <laughs> comments yeah, or anything I'm on that? I'm just living my big hunt seat gelding out for a lease to his previous family. And when he arrived off of the trailer, he came off with a quarter crack. So I'm just Are reliving, yeah, uh, I'm reliving my own farrier nightmares over here. Uh <laughs> Sorry. No, this is actually really good just because I, back in the day when I was younger, I feel like I was more knowledgeable. And as I've gotten older, I've lost knowledge. No, you haven't. So <laughs> it's oh, been really. Not. It sounds like your cold's getting better. Yes, I've been hacking over here. So it's been <laughs> muted for all of our listeners. But on that note, you mentioned your website where you have all of those published papers. Is there anywhere else that you would send clients or just general horse people for more information? Is there any other resources that you like to utilize? 
That's a good question. It's something I, I have to think about a little bit. You know, there's a lot of universities that have some websites. As far as information like I have, I don't know any of them right off, off the top of my head that have. They, there's a lot of shoeing schools. There's a lot of vet practices that may have a few articles here or there. But I don't. That's a good question. Give your website one more time because it is. I know your website is robust with the amount of information it has. We also have a blog there, some insight on different things. There's a one I really like there on so-called Navicor disease. That's one you need to read. But anyway, it's www.equipodiatry, E-Q-U-I-P-O-D-I-A-T-R-Y.com. And again, I try my best to keep it up to date, but my daughter used to do it and now she's out practicing on her own and a big deal. So she doesn't mm-hmm. have much time to do it. So it falls behind a little bit, but uh, we try and keep pretty much up to date. I just presented a paper at AAP last month on barefoot methodology. And that's another one we could do a whole podcast on. Uh, Mm. I love it. We might have to get you back on for a a barefoot podcast. Which we published last month. And uh, I don't think that paper's up there and there might be one or two that, but they'll be up there. They'll be up there shortly. I have permission from the different journals where I publish to reprint them. In other words, to put them out there so the public can see them, that's farriers or whatever. But you'll see a lot of the papers are long and I'll send, there was a farrier that called me and he, had, he was having trouble with a horse with white line disease. And I said, listen, you know, I just published a paper on 150 cases with the farrier from Virginia Tech, great guy, Travis Burns. I said, go to my website, have a good read. And then, you know, if you have questions, come back and ask me. He said, well, he called me a couple of days later. He said, I do have a couple of questions. I said, well, that wasn't helpful. Oh, he said it was helpful. He said, but doc, he says, far too much information for me. I couldn't read that much. <laughs> okay. So then you, to- they start to figure out pretty quick how much you don't know. <laughs> when you see your information on your website, but it was a review on white line disease, sort of up through the years, you know, what we do know, what we don't know. There was a lot of information there, but in order to be a review, you have to start from the beginning or when right. stuff was first published. All right. Well, before we let you go, give us just some quick tips on best practices for everyday hoof care with your regular old horse. You just want to do best your horse if they're being cognizant of their hoof health and hoof care what are good things to be aware of as a horse owner and number one that your horse is going to your satisfaction and he's not lame number two if you have a good farrier and veterinarian that you can that they communicate together and you communicate with them keep them number three lift up the bottom of the horse's foot and look at the frog If you don't have a good frog, you don't have a good foot. Well said. Can't argue with that. That's all I got for today. I know we could do 10 more podcasts on deep dive topics, so we may have to try and get you back on, maybe highlight on something, but we'll let you get back to your Sunday unless Liz has any other questions. You mean a little football. (laughs) Yeah, that, (laughs) and that's good. Yeah, that's, well, today's not going to be quite as interesting as the next few weeks, but yeah. No, no, no. But there's there. Yeah. Perfect. Well, guys, I hope this was a little bit helpful. You know, I'm all about trying to help the horse, trying to help vets, trying to help barriers. 
and especially horse owners, but again, especially the horse. So I think what you guys are doing is great. Keep it up. Keep up the great work. I'm honored to be asked. Thank you. Thank you. We so appreciate your time. And I'll let you know when this episode's getting ready to air or send you the link, you know, so that you're aware of it when we get it out. But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'd love to hear some of it. I'd see how much I screwed up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Never, never. We're thrilled to have your level of expertise on here to talk with us normal common folk. So No, not common folk. You guys guys are well informed. I tend to get a little wordy because as you can see, I get get excited over what I do. I love it. I'm all about it. Yeah, but thanks again. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you. you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right, that'll be your class. Bring them in and line them up.